0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and those of you who read my my columns on this website will know that I've been very carefully tracking what goes on at the United Nations and the European Union, especially with regard, of course, to the issues of life and family. And recently, I was very, very disappointed to get a series of, of emails from the organization CFAM, on a non-binding resolution passed at the UN to make abortion an international human right. And and one of the key disappointments here was that the ambassadors of Hungary and Poland voted in favor of it. Now, I wanted to get an explanation for all of you on what does this resolution mean? What is going on at the United Nations? How can we counter what's going on in the United Nations? And how does this have an impact on the global pro-life and pro-family movement? And to do that, I turned to the head of CFAM, Austin Roos, who is an American activist, he's a journalist, he's an author, and he's been doing this work for decades. He's the president of the Center for Family and Human Rights, and he has done brilliant work for decades, foiling the sexual left at the international level, doing work that nobody else is doing. And so I wanted to have him on to kind of explain what was going on. This is our conversation, and I hope you fi- find it as helpful As I did. So, Mr. Roos, the reason I wanted to have this discussion with you today is is something I've been tracking for a while that you and your organization, CFAM, have been intimately involved with and, and your reporting has been invaluable to those of us who are attempting to find out what's going on at the international level, which is the recent United Nations resolution enshrining abortion as a human right. Now, a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions about that. So maybe, for starters, just explain to us the ins and outs of this resolution.
1: Well, first of all, it's it's a non-binding resolution, which means it, it ostensibly has very little power except the power to persuade. In it, for the first time in a, in a General Assembly resolution, they place safe abortion in the context of human rights. Now, having said that, I will also say that Non-binding resolutions can have a great deal of power. First of all, non-binding resolutions are highly effective within the UN system. My colleague Stefano Giannarrini says that they are binding on, on the UN system. And there's the UN system. I mean, it's, it's several billion-dollar agencies with tentacles that reach into, you know, every town and village around the world, especially in the developing world. So in that way, it will have tremendous power. It will also be used rhetorically to say that now there's an international right to abortion and you have to change their laws. This will be taken seriously by, by lawyers and judges around the world. So it's non-binding, but it's highly influential.
0: Who pulled this off and how did they pull it off? Because I've I've been following your work for many years, and I know that attempts to do just this have been thwarted for decades.
1: This was in, in the works for the last five months. The lead delegations on this were Japan and Sierra Leone. But I mean, behind it was the Biden administration. Behind it w- was the European Union. So, so these are the great powers behind this. I think there were something like 80 sponsors of this, including, as we have been reporting, Hungary and Poland, neither of which have really done much of anything for the, pro- for the pro-life cause at the United Nations in the 25 years that, that, that we have been doing this work. This has been a longtime dream of the other side. And who is behind it? All the powers of the earth.
0: This is something I really wanted to pick your brain on. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to interview you, because the Hungary and, and Poland thing is particularly bewildering. I, I've interviewed a lot of members of the Hungarian government, including the, the current president, specifically on their efforts to reduce abortion. You know, there was the Geneva Accords where they kind of declared themselves pro-life nations, although abortion is still legal in Hungary. They've, they've done a lot to re, to reduce the abortion rate and create a culture of life. What is the explanation for their sponsorship of this? It seems so out of character and it seems so in defiance of everything else they're attempting to do.
1: Well, you know, the question becomes is why have they been silent on this issue for at least 25 years at the United Nations? you know, along with Poland. After we reported on this over the last couple of weeks, and I wrote a very strong editorial two weeks ago, in which I called them cowards. One of our pro-life friends in the Netherlands got an award from the Hungarian government in The Hague just a few days ago, and he asked the ambassador there, why? And the ambassador said that they fight with the EU on so many issues that they choose their battles. You know, but the problem with that is that this is kind of a risk-free battle. You know, all they have to do is is break the EU consensus on this, and what happens is the the 27 EU countries then have to go negotiate on their own and not behind the curtain of the EU. So it would, if you know what, if if Nigeria can stand up to the EU on this issue at the United Nations then it's, it's a puzzlement to me why Hungary can't. So I'm disappointed, you know, in in our friends from Hungary. We, we, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, pro-lifers have been involved with Hungary much longer than, you know, guys like Rod Dreher and Tucker Carlson. And and I mean, we've been going there for years and years. We've been sponsoring conferences with them in Washington, going back 10 years. So so we have been big fans of, of Hungary and what they're doing domestically. But what they do with the United Nations is kind of zilch.
0: Correct me if I have this wrong, but I was under the impression that Poland had actually fought the European Union over their own increasingly tight abortion restrictions. And it seems like that battle would be far more costly. So, again, I'm just trying to figure out why Poland would fight to defend their very stringent pro-life laws with the European Union, which actually has the power to you know implement sanctions on them, deny them funding, etc., but isn't willing to do the same thing, as you, as you point out, a uh, fairly risk-free at the UN.
1: You know, they may be calculating that they don't want to go toe to toe with the European Union on something that is quote unquote non binding. So they may determine that they, there may be some horse trading going on. Well, I guarantee you there's horse trading going on that we will know about. So it very well could be that they have determined that they're not going to fight the EU on something that doesn't amount to much in their estimation. I'm here to tell them that it matters a great deal and it will matter a great deal going forward.
0: I read your, your scathing editorial and and what kind of struck me is that you're the only one I've learned these facts from because Hungary is, is almost constantly discussed now. Rod Dreyer has dedicated a, a, a decent percentage of his blog to, to defending almost everything Orban has to say and, and, and talking up these policies. So why is it that nobody else has noted what you have noted? Because it seems to me to be a fairly significant ble- blemish on their international record and very relevant to the current discussions around what they're doing.
1: One of the problems that we face in the work that we do is that the wider conservative world doesn't really care all that much about what happens at the united nations and part of our work for the last quarter century has been to convince more and more people especially on 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 the conservative wing of, of the political debate that what happens at the United Nations is very important. You know, I, I gave, I'm, I'm at the National Conservative Conference in Miami right now and, and gave a talk yesterday on these particular issues, you know, and, and I pointed out that, you know, when, when the Supreme Court overturned the juvenile death penalty here in the United States, the Supreme Court cited the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which the United states has never acceded to. So, so these documents, non-binding and binding, are taken very seriously by judges and lawyers around the world, including in our own country. You know, I don't know if Rod is going to be interested in, in criticizing Hungary over this particular issue. I was on a panel with a gentleman by the name of Balaj Orban, who they call Orban's brain, and I told him about it. He didn't know. And he said that he's going to inquire about it, and I believe him but it very well could you know very very well could end up that we will never find out why Hungary is never willing to break the EU consensus
0: is part of this the fact that I, I one of the frustrations as as a pro lifer and I know this has been the case for you too, because you've written about this before, is that very few broader conservative commentators, and I don't want to pick on Dreer, but like he would just be an example of that, right? People who people were examining big trends and and things like that, kind of ignore how the pro life fight unfolds in other countries, and so what we see happening in in Latin and South America, for example, with the green movement facing off with the blue movement, we've seen some significant victories. We've also seen seen some very significant losses. But it just takes, you know, a, a socialist president, as they have in several countries right now, to appoint a couple of activist judges who are then going to take this and say, we are obligated, you know, by our UN membership. And there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. This is taken out of the hands of the people and and next thing you know abortion is legal in a country where it's never been legal before and and thousands of preborn babies will die as a direct result is this just not well understood by those who comment on these things even though abortion is supposed to be one of their top issues i just don't think that most
1: conservatives do not care about Foreign countries, except insofar as these foreign countries may be a threat to the united states so uh, there 's a real lack of interest in the internet in in the ins and outs and ups and downs of the international pro life movement. people who are truly pro life in the United States you know people have to pick pick their interests and pick it, it takes a great deal of work to to school yourself on on the pro life fight in Ecuador for instance or at the United Nations even so you know i i i give folks a lot of slack for not necessarily knowing and you know and, and one of the reasons that i do that is because my organization we focus like a laser beam on pro-life and pro-family issues in, at the United Nations, and insofar as these issues affect international policy. So we're very stovepiped. And you know, everybody tends to be a little bit stovepiped. I, 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 you know, and like I said, part of our job is explaining this to the wider conservative world. I, you know, I find that most everybody gets it, but they have limited amount of time to actually engage. So I, I, I cut folks a lot of slack.
0: So let's give a practical example just to illustrate to people what the potential impact of this could be. Let's take a country like Malta, which is under massive pressure to do away with its pro-life regime. What could the potential impact of a non-binding resolution be like like for, for a country like Malta?
1: I would say that the pro abortion forces trying to change laws in Malta is like pushing on an open door i I, I think that they're they're quite eager to 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 go left on on the sexual revolution but but the way that this will be used is rhetorically it would it would be used rhetorically in the in any kind of parliamentary debate in an advanced society like Malta but how it would be used in a country like Ecuador or Colombia although Colombia already already caved in is that these types of non-binding resolutions and statements of, you know, human rights experts would be used in briefs before their high court, saying that we now have a legal obligation to change our laws. A a part of my talk this week was on what's called customary international law, which, which is the claim that universal state practice, with the understanding of legal obligation, is as binding as a treaty. And so the left, the sexual left, makes the case that there's a customary international right to abortion because of Resolutions like this now, this is false, but people on the ground around the world, lawyers and judges, are eager to have this kind of information and this kind of rhetorical and even legal device
0: so let 's talk about more nefarious versions of soft power, so for example, our mutual friend Obinuji Ichocha, who wrote you know, Target Africa ideological neocolonialism in the the 21st century and she talks about how the way that abortion is kind of smuggled into a lot of these developing nations in Africa is because you know making widespread contraception or abortion available is tied to desperately needed foreign aid how could a non-binding resolution be used by by a nation that's saying well we'll give you you know a billion dollars in infrastructure funding but because you're currently out of step with international law as per this resolution we're going to have to ask you to make some changes before we can invest in, in, in your economy are results like that possible?
1: Almost certainly. We we hosted 20 UN diplomats and their families for a a three-day retreat in the Pocono Mountains a couple of weeks ago, actually right before this debate happened. And one of the topics of discussion were sanctions. And there are hard sanctions and there are soft sanctions. Soft sanctions are precisely this, that in in order to get this billion dollars of of aid, and it's generally not for infrastructure, it's generally for, quote-unquote, health, which means UN style health you know if you look at the the funding mechanism for out of USAID and other UN agencies into these into these foreign countries it's probably 90% to advance the sexual revolution so a resolution like this will be used as you know as a stick that you know here's what the general assembly said and you have to go along or you're going to lose this money. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the good news. There were a number of countries who stood up and gave explanations of position. It is my understanding from, from my staff that there were more explanations of position on this non-binding resolution than we have ever seen before. So, and I don't remember what the what the number was. It was 25 or 30 countries made formal statements at the end condemning this part of, of this resolution. I mean, and, the, and there was an effort led by Nigeria to amend these resolu- this resolution to exclude these things. And this is the th- something that, that Hungary voted against. So uh, the good news is that there are still a lot of countries who object to this in the old days of UN negotiations, when the UN really worked by consensus, if one country objected to something, that something was taken out of the document. Now we see over the years, it's developed into, you know, you need 25 or 50 or 60 or 75. And then, you know, the chairman of the negotiating committee, in this case, Japan can simply ignore them. And that's, that's the big dirty story of this negotiation is that Japan would not allow true negotiations. It's a shame. It's shameful what what Japan did and what the United States encouraged.
0: Now, a lot of people, I think, tune out international news simply because it makes them feel helpless. You know, if if you urge somebody to vote for the right guy or vote against the wrong guy, you know, they can knock on doors or at a very minimum, they can fill out their own ballot. Or if it's in a different place, they can urge somebody to vote for the right guy, right? Whereas when it comes to the United Nations and the European Union, a lot of people feel very, very helpless. So when we're looking at these international bodies, what are practical things that people can do Besides supporting CFAM, which I which I do urge people to do, because as far as I know you guys are the only ones that that are doing this, you're certainly the only source of information I have on the ins and outs of what the sexual left is up to. So what what are tangible things that people can actually do to combat the sort of thing that you've been reporting on for a couple of decades?
1: What I tell people when I go around and I talk about my UN work, and they ask this specific question, "What can I do?" I quite honestly say, "You know what? You got to stay home and take over the school board." You know, it's—I got to tell you—it's very expensive uh, to open up an office at the United Nations and engage them. You know, every day. I mean, it's very expensive. You know, we we have a full-time presence there at the United Nations. We have a presence in Washington D.C. to work specifically on, on international issues. But I mean, I I hate to say it because I'm not here to rattle my tin cup, but donations are the mother's milk of the work that we do. And if people can donate to us, that would be great. If people want to come to the United Nations and assist us, we can do that, too. We have trained hundreds of people over the years and brought them into active UN negotiations. But other than that, and you know what? This speaks to one of the great democratic deficits that exists in this particular venue. You know, here in the United States, you can go to Washington, D.C., well, I mean, before January 6th, you know, maybe before COVID, you could go and literally walk into the door of your congressman and ask to see somebody, and somebody would see you. You know, you could go to your district office and walk in, and somebody would see you. So, you know, I I would say to, uh, gosh, to almost anybody on the left, who is the U.S. ambassador to the Economic and Social Council? and nobody would know. And that's the person you have to reach out to if you're interested in trying to affect the United States position at the UN. So it's not like you can go knock on a door. You have to camp out at the UN for years and meet these people in the hallway and and to try to get meetings and things like that. So uh, honestly speaking, people need to pray every day for us if they can and and to donate to 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 our work. And you know, if you want to come to the UN Let me know
0: let's get a sense of, of how things function because what, what's what's interesting to me about people like you know you know like you know orban's brain there not actually having been aware of what goes on and i've interviewed diplomats on this before and what seems to me is that it's sort of a different world apart from politics even the domestic policy politics of the countries that they represent very often and so like i remember when when when, when leo varadkar was was advocating for people to overturn the eighth amendment one of the things that was so obvious about the way he talked about it was that he actually cared a lot more about not being embarrassed at the G seven or when hanging out with Justin Trudeau or his other you know globalist counterparts than he did about what Middle Ireland actually thought because he he was a member of of, of the sort of elite class and that mattered more to him. Their opinions meant more to him than what you know average everyday Irish people cared about to what extent are are people in the United Nations representing countries more or less doing what they 're doing? as members of that elite class, as opposed to actually representing the countries that they come from? Let me put it this way.
1: It took us three and a half years to convince the Trump administration to come up with a regular negotiating position on the life issues that we approved of. And it took, <laughs> it, took it, it took the State Department and Joe Biden like one day to get rid of all of them. So, so, you know, everybody knew the position that Donald Trump took on the life issues, and even at the international level. But we were not able to convince the State Department and the U.S. delegation to the U.N. to do the right thing. It took us years to force them to do the right thing. So, you know, people go to the UN, I mean, good countries send bad delegations, you know, there's a huge disconnect between UN delegations and the home office and capitals. And these people can do pretty much whatever they want to. Sometimes this works to our advantage. I mean, we we can have friends on on delegations from bad countries, and we can have enemies on delegations from great countries. And part of our work is just sussing out, you know, who's good, who's bad, who's willing to you know stand up at the at 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 a particularly key moment so you would wish that there would be a direct connection between the laws in a particular country and the negotiating position that people take in in New York but there's really not
0: interesting so one of the questions i've wanted to ask you for a while simply because you know your your life has been figuring out what's going on at an international level and working to counter the sexual left is what about organizations such as the world economic forum which i'll admit like i've read claus schwab's book it's boring and bureaucratic and and, and all the more sinister because of, of how boring and bureaucratic it is but i'll admit i don't really have any idea what kind of power that organization has like is it just a trade show you know for elites with garbage ideas or like so what when it comes to our issues there, there's a lot of theories going around i will confess my ignorance as to which ones of those are accurate and which ones aren't but you know from, from from, from your perspective, on your perch observing these people, how, how would you say the World Economic Forum ranks in, in in the international threats to life and family?
1: One of the blessings of our narrow focus is that we don't feel compelled to examine every single institution that's active on the on the global stage. So I don't know really anything about the World Economic Forum. I what I do know is that the second largest donor to the World Health Organization is Bill Gates, second only to the government of Germany. And he has profound influence over UN social policy and the way money is spent around the world. It would not surprise me even a little bit that the guys at the World Economic Forum are on the phone regularly to the head of the World World Health Organization or UNFPA. It seems to me that they all come from the same stew. But can I point to anything in particular? No, because we really don't follow them. We really do focus like a laser beam on the UN General Assembly and the attendant UN agencies and, and some governments like the United States. So here's an answer for you.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I know. And I keep on trying to find somebody who has, you know, tangible evidence of conversations that are taking place. and, And I'm laser focused on life and family. And so I'm sure like I know they have all kinds of garbage ideas. Again, I've got the book The Great Reset on my on my desk and I don't care for any of it. But my primary concerns are the same. As your primary concerns. So you mentioned mentioned Bill Gates here. This would be uh, would be an interesting question as well for people who are listening. Which people would you say individuals have an outsize effect on 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 pushing the sorts of things that we are trying to stop?
1: I think that there's nobody more powerful than 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 Bill Gates. I mean, all all the institutional players are are you know the most powerful and they're not gonna change. The UN Population Fund, you know, they've got a billion dollars a year. UNICEF is bad on these issues, has been for years. The World Health Organization, this this new-ish institution of the United Nations called called UN Women. So all of those have uh, the most institutional power with regard to individuals. Well, I, and, and into this mix, I would throw you know the Ford Foundation. They have a massive building, just a, like a block from the United Nations. They're deeply involved in this kind of stuff. The Rockefeller Foundation is very involved. But in terms of individuals, Bill Gates, I, I would I would say is is the most important. I mean, there are other individuals who are involved in on the ground around the world, but but I would say in the UN context. It's, it's it's Bill Gates, and you know, with regard to you know the Great Reset and and and, and imposing a certain totalitarian view of global health, you know the, you know the COVID pandemic gave the World Health Organization a tremendous amount of power, and and there has been a negotiation ongoing which would give them even more power globally to set health policy in countries around the world. And who's that? That's Bill Gates
0: now i'm going to ask you this just because i've got you on the phone and 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 I, this doesn't apply directly to your work but it, it, it's all sort of part of it so we've seen all these these populist backlashes over the last couple of years because a lot of the covid lockdowns pushed people just too far it was sort of like you know the straw that broke the camel's back so you have this sort of weird conglomeration of public health measures green green policies that are strangling economies so you see you know the dutch farmer protests the freedom convoy you you know you see what happened in sri lanka all these things together to what extent in your view do these sort of populist outbursts especially as you know if if winter in europe is what people suspect it will be and we saw seventy thousand people rallying in prague a week and a half ago to what extent do, do, do does does ordinary people power have have the ability to push back against the sort of globalist forces that you track it's very,
1: a, that's a very interesting question. I understand from my friend, David Quinn in Ireland, that that Jordan Peterson spoke, I think in Dublin last night and 13,000 people came and David wondered if this would ever translate into any kind of political movement. And my hunch is no. I I remember not too many years ago when France was considering changing their marriage laws, they turned out a million people in the streets of Paris more than once. This is the equivalent of 17 million people taking the street, taking to the streets of Washington D.C. on any particular issue. Now, if that happened in the United States, there would be a political earthquake in this country. But was there a result in France? No. It. it, it it kind of ended with a whimper. You know, that should have created a massive political movement, and it didn't. Now, maybe you know these things with the farmers in the netherlands will will have some sort of result i don't know but i mean the, the result has to be to change governments around the world and and not necessarily at the united nations you know the united nations is is a leading indicator and also a lagging indicator and so it's 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 hard for me to see that the that the dutch farmers are going to change you know the negotiating position of the netherlands at the united nations you would hope that it would have a profound effect on domestic politi- politics there. But I remain a little bit skeptical. I mean, years ago, who was the woman that started the big marches in in Paris? What what was her name? Golly, you know, she came and I I saw her speak privately in in Washington. And she was talking about, I mean, this was a long time ago. There were riots going on among French farmers in Brittany. And she said, we are in a pre-revolutionary phase, which which has a lot of meaning in, in a place like France. But nothing happened. And you've got all these yellow vest protesters. You have millions of people in the street over marriage and and nothing really seems. And who's elected? Macron. So I don't know. You know, in the United States, these kind of mass movements can have a profound effect. But I think there's something about the way that politics are run in parliamentary systems that prevent this kind of impact from populist movements.
0: That's very interesting because one of my, my, my massive frustrations about the way things proceed in Canada is you have the Prime Minister talking about how Canadians feel, specifically about social issues. And if if you listen to him, right, everybody's on board with dozens of genders. Same-sex marriage is, is something we, we cannot fathom ever having lived without. Everybody is is pro-abortion. But when you actually break down the numbers, it's actually only white Canadians, those of European descent, who are, are you know, 65, 35, sorry, in the, in the attack as opposed to when they pull Canadians of East Asian descent, for example, millions of them in the greater Toronto area, they're still 65% opposed to same-sex marriage, something Trudeau thinks we dealt with 20 years ago. And so when you actually do, you break down the numbers and you look at immigrant communities and you who are the only ones having children here, there's more people in this country that think like you and I do than think like Justin Trudeau does. But none of that ever seems to to make a difference. Like It does seem like the sexual revolutionaries have so thoroughly captured the institution that the voices either don't break through or they're so focused on ballot box issues such as inflation that they never, you know, bother to make a fuss or the one that I hate the most, which is just the idea of inevitability, that this is all a foregone conclusion. What's your take on why the fact that not everybody has gone insane, and in many countries majorities of people haven't gotten insane, doesn't seem to affect whether or not our leaders are insane?
1: Here's here's a question that we're we're grappling with here at the National Conservative Conference. Is the gay marriage issue... Off the table because of Obergefell. There was a remarkable debate between Yoram Hazoni, who's the, who's the creator, leader of the National Conservative Conference, and Ben Dominic, you know, the libertarian pundit who's, you know, now Fox News. And and Ben Dominic got really angry that Yoram Hazoni would suggest that there are people who still oppose gay marriage and want to advance this opposition politically and even legally. He could not believe it. And and, and Hazoni in this interview said, Ben, your rhetoric is turning quite violent. And, and, and it was. And, and in this conference, you're seeing a tremendous amount of people who believe that the same-sex marriage debate is not settled law, like they said that abortion was in this country. There was a the president of Bethlehem College spoke earlier today, and he said over and over again that we will not allow LGB to become separated from the T because they're all connected and they're related to an improper understanding of human sexuality. There was repeated applause in, in, this, in this crowd for what he was saying. So, you know, polling, you know, Dominic relied on polling. He said, you know, polling shows that, you know, m- you know, most Americans and including most Republicans have grown quite comfortable with gay marriage. But, you know, I, I point out to people that when polls were taken prior to 32 state uh, races on, on traditional marriage back before the federal courts took this over, the polls showed us losing in all of them. And we won 32 in a row, so, you know, polling is one thing, voting is another. I don't think that this debate is far from over and it's not settled. So I, I don't have an, I, I don't know why to your question. For instance, in this country, conservative constituencies like the, the Latinos are are not four square for the party that is fighting for a proper understanding of, of, of human sexuality. or the subset of, of that particular party, because there's a lot of Republican squishes. So it's 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 a very fine question that I don't necessarily have an answer to. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's up to us to build these bridges and build these coalitions and bring people in. And, you know, Kathy and I, my wife and I went to an early Trump rally in Northern Virginia. And uh, one of the striking things about that early Trump rally was, and I hate this word, how diverse it was, Man, it, it was amazing. There were guys in turbans, there was, you know, dark skinned people everywhere. And it just wasn't a bunch of, you know, white guys. So I, I think that there is a lot of interest on, on behalf of a lot of people to turn away from the way, woke gender nonsense. And in this way, I think that, you know, the transgender debate is a great gift, just as critical race theories is a great gift.
0: I really think that when they publish this interview, that they should put "the transgender movement is a great gift." Austin Ruse is the header. I think, I think that'd be fantastic. No, no. The reason I, I try to parse all of these things is because there's a lot of, of 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 totalizing theories that are going on that try to explain our really messy, complicated post sexual revolution world with saying it's these people, these are the bad guys, etc. And and the key thing I, I I hate about totalizing theories is that they reduce agency. And, 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 you know, they're great for social media fodder and rage, but they don't give people anything to do. And, and I just think helplessness is a particularly negative emotion when you see the world going to hell around you. Can you kind of delineate as far as you know, what the next couple of the the challenges of the next couple of years, the really significant ones coming up will be for social conservatives on the international level?
1: The debate that we have at the United Nations, gosh, this week (laughs) is the same debate that we had at Cairo in 1995. So, so, So what's going to happen is that we're going to continue every day teaching new diplomats what gender really means. By the way, you, you may not know, this is new news to an awful lot of people, but it's not new news, it's old news. There's actually a very good definition of gender in international law. We assisted in the negotiations. We, we we did not favor the International Criminal Court's creation, but we participated in the negotiations of the Rome statutes that created the International Criminal Court. And there is a very solid definition of gender in the Rome statutes of the International Criminal Court, which is a hard law treaty. And the definition is Men and women in the context of society. now the other side is is trying to get a, a a new treaty on crimes against humanity in which they want to change the definition. We'll be fighting them on that tooth and nail. but you know the our work is today what it was twenty five years ago, and that is building coalitions. Of, of governments who are willing to stand up to the sexual revolution. I will also say that there's also a lot of regret with regard to the sexual revolution. There's a recent book that came out from a woman whose name escapes me. Louise Perry. Yes, talking about her regret. There's another book that actually just came out of Great Britain on the same topic. So there are a lot of women who are recognizing what social conservatives said all along, is that this would be profoundly harmful to, to women, certainly harmful to men. So it, it's and it, I, I look at the, the the work of the Ruth Institute in, in, in identifying the victims of the sexual revolution and bringing them forward so they can talk about it. So, so our work will remain the same, you know, bringing this message into the halls of the United Nations and getting a few small, brave governments to stand up to the power and might of the U.S., European Union, and the U.N.
0: To end on a note that encourages people to take up the mantle of counter-revolutionary, maybe you could just share with us some of, some of the great successes of CFAM over the decades, and, and especially the fights that prove that doing this work is worth it
1: the sexual left has tried to make abortion an internationally recognized human right for more than 25 years, and they have failed because a small number of faithful Christians stopped them. They have tried to redefine the family for more than 25 years, and we have stopped them. They have tried to make sexual orientation and gender identity a new category of non-discrimination in international law, and they failed because we've stopped them. A small band of totally unknown Christians who had this vision that God was calling them into a particular fight at the U.N., and 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 went and did it. Now we're not the only ones. I mean, the, our, there's our friends at Family Watch International who are Mormons who have been involved in this fight. There have been various people who have come through the doors at the United Nations over the years. Uh, I think of an evangelical named Peter Smith who lives in Scotland. I I, I think of a Brit named uh, Charlie Hoare. I think of Jean Head from National Right to Life who who went to these meetings faithfully for 25 years and is now retired. So a small band of faithful Christians have stopped the global right to abortion, redefinition of the family, and sexual orientation and gender identity from becoming a category of non-discrimination in international law. And we've done it against all the powers of the earth. And that's why they don't like us very much. But it's quite astounding that, that we, this little band of unknowns, have been able to do over a quarter of a century. So, you know, history is made by those who go to the meeting, stay to the end, and if they can, write the minutes.
0: Final question, and we really appreciate your time because we know that you're swamped at the National Conservative Conference in Florida right now. Can you please direct our listeners to where they can make a contribution to your work?
1: I'm so grateful that you asked. Our website is am.org, dot morg There's a donate button. They can also subscribe to our weekly report, The Friday Facts, which you get. We, we've been reporting on these issues every week for 25 years. We missed one week because of 9-11. It's it's quite a It's One of our greatest achievements is we 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 put out two stories every week for 25 years. Just this, you know, there's there, there's there's six of us and two part time, and it's uh, hats off to my staff. And if anybody wants to give, please give, but definitely subscribe to the Friday Facts,
0: Mr. Roos, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me ladies and gentlemen that was my conversation with austin ruse of cfam please do support their work if it is in your means and do subscribe to their friday Facts newsletter it's where i get all of my news on the international developments that affect life and family if you want to check out past shows or subscribe to future shows please go to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab you can find the van maren show there and you can subscribe to get the weekly show delivered to you again thank you so much for your time this week and we hope you'll join us again next week